If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's page 640 in your pew Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The whole chapter. When uh, writing about how to become a great poet, the great British writer T.S. Eliot said this about how one goes about becoming a great poet. He says, one of the surest tests is the way in which a poet borrows from others. Immature poets imitate. Mature poets steal. Bad poets deface what they take and good poets make it into something better or at least something different. The desire in our culture is to be unique. We see it every day, and uh, in fact, that's one of the things about being a North American that we pride ourselves on. We rebelled against our mother country, and we were unique, and and we set ourselves up as our own country. We uh, conquered, so to speak, the West uh, by by cowboys and uh, taking things from people, Um, and so we, we like the fact of being Americans and being unique, being strong, and being independent. That's, that's what we take our value in. Um, but if we pause long enough, all of the successful companies, uh, all the successful companies that have differentiated themselves from other companies, they've actually just borrowed success principles from previous companies, right? So um, they, they've, they've borrowed them, and in, indeed inherent to our own makeup as human beings, is the fact that we copy others, that we mimic others, that we emulate others. For better or worse, if you've been raised in the South, uh, you have a drawl in how you talk. You, you didn't try to have a drawl. You don't try to have a certain saunter when you walk. That's just what it is to be a Southerner. Uh, same thing with Midwesterners, which, which is somewhat what I am. I'm kind of a little bit of everything uh, and nothing in particular. But I didn't set about having... No accent or having an accent. That's just what I imbibed and mimicked from my family. Um, in fact, speaking about myself, uh, just briefly, um, you know, we, I grew up in a small rural town in Kentucky. Glasgow, Kentucky, about 15,000 people, where the, the main bread and butter was won through tobacco farming. And the main fashion of Glasgow, Kentucky are tight Wrangler jeans. Now, I was a Husky boy, and tight Wrangler jeans are not something that, tight, that, that Husky boys wear. But uh, I wanted to differentiate myself. I wanted to be an original. And so I wanted to make sure that people knew that I didn't like country music, and I didn't wear Wrangler jeans. I wore Jinkos, which were really cool back in the day. Uh, I listened to grunge music. Um, and if you remember grunge music from Seattle, Washington, you had I, – I had th- – imagine this. This is rural Kentucky. And here I am, everyone is wearing red wing boots and tight wranglers, and I'm wearing cut-off jeans about down here mid-calf, and I'm wearing long johns or thermal underwear because that's what grunge people wore because that's what drew my heart. I wanted to be unique, and yet I started to look at how did Pearl Jam dress, how did Soundgarden dress, how did all these people dress? They dressed that same way. So everyone, while trying to be unique and different, were actually the same. 
And so even in our attempts to be unique and original, we cannot get out of the fishbowl, as it were. We are fish and we are we are swimming in water and we need someone to come and tell us you are in water. You are you are a creature and you need someone. You need something outside of yourself um, for your um, for your sustenance as well as for your identity. No matter how hard we try to be unique, we can never be utterly unique. So I want you to have this in mind because as, as T.S. Eliot said, it wasn't a matter of whether, whether poets imitate. He said every single poet, every single poet, good and bad, borrow. They look at someone before them and they emulate it. So have that in mind as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess that we need you. We confess that our pride often causes us to try to be original, try to be unique. And while you have made each one of us unique in a certain way, we are still dependent upon another. We live and move and have our being in you. In fact, we are the very imprint of God as the image of God, as God bears. And so, Father, we, we pray that you would even now, in these few moments that we have together, that, Father, you would impress upon us the need to imitate and to choose carefully who we imitate. Father, would you open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts this afternoon. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would help us to understand and not just understand with our minds, but with our hearts embrace what you have to teach us this afternoon. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just got done reading or, or looking at Philippians together. 
And Paul was in prison when he was writing the, the letter to the Philippians. And here in Thessalon- in the letter to the Thessalonians, he's probably in the city of Corinth. And it's around the year 50. And he's about, it's about a week's journey away where he is right now. In Corinth to Thessalonica. And he's remembering their faith. In fact, he wasn't with them very long. He may have been with them about three or four weeks. Commentators aren't really sure. So he wasn't with them for a very long time. But he gets this report from Timothy that the Thessalonians' faith is spreading throughout that region. And he is utterly encouraged. And so I wanted us to look at three pieces of what Christian faith is. Three aspects of Christian faith. First, we're going to look at Christian faith is communal in nature. Christian faith copies. And Christian faith commends. I didn't intend for them to all be C's, but that's how it worked out. I'm not a real big alliteration guy, but Christian faith is communal. It copies and it commends. So I'm going to, I'm going to bank on that one because that doesn't happen very much. So Christian faith is communal. Did you notice... That even though Paul is not in prison, and even when he is in prison, he, he starts his letters out with who is with him. Paul is writing this letter, and sure he's got a scribe, but he doesn't have to include Silvanus. Silvanus is also known as Silas. Uh, he doesn't have to include Silas and Timothy, but he does. He includes them in his letter because... He knows that he is dependent upon others. In fact, he's dependent upon Timothy to bring news of the Thessalonians to him. He's dependent on whoever was to take this letter to the Thessalonians. And and we saw in Philippians, implicit throughout that letter is that the Philippian church was supporting him. And they were sharing in fellowship with him, even though they were very, very far away from him. And so he knows that he needs partners in the gospel. That he's not a one-hit wonder and he's not a solo artist. That he depends on others. And that's the very nature of the Christian faith. Is that we are to have true fellowship with one another. We aren't meant merely to have a relationship between just me and God. And and that's how um, I'm just a really private person. But that our Private faith ought to also be public in nature because that's what we talk about. You talk about what's important to you. I don't have to tell you uh, to talk about what's important to you. It just naturally comes out of who you are. He's under no obligation to write a letter to this group of folks even. He, He was just passing through, so to speak. He didn't spend years with them. It'd be like going on a vacation and you meet some folks and you write a letter to them. You say, hey, you know what? I heard that you're doing really, really well. And I just wanted to encourage you, and I wanted to write a, a five-chapter letter to say, hey, keep going. Have you, have you considered that these letters are Paul's way of modeling for you and for me the utter necessity of each other? You see, what, what was comforting and what brought joy to this stalwart apostle We're no-name people at a no-name church that doesn't exist right now. But to the Apostle Paul, they were utterly necessary to his ministry. And as he was hearing about their faith increasing and spreading throughout that region, he took heart. He was encouraged to keep going on. You see, he doesn't view folks, he doesn't view other people as projects to be won over to something. He doesn't view people as, I really have to 
share the gospel with them so that they'll do this and so that then we'll have a larger church or any, any number of things. That, that people were valuable in and of themselves. Their faith and love was integrally tied to his own. He's saying, I am growing in my love for God because you are growing in your love for God. In fact, think if you look at a few other passages to see how intimate his love for these folks. Again, he didn't even spend a month, month with these folks. And Listen to the intimacy in which he speaks to them. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, he says... But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, though not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his com- coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Consider 1 Thessalonians, the very next chapter, chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. You always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are, if, listen, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. As you consider our small group, our small church, that the Lord is adding to our number, what is your disposition towards each other? That's not meant to be an indictment. But have you considered, like, have you considered that the Lord has ordered our footsteps in such a way, not in any way that you or I would have planned? And these are the people that God has given us. Paul didn't gripe and complain about being shipwrecked. He rejoiced and he served God and he loved people that God gave him. And the people in this room are the people that God has given you and me. To build our faith up. We aren't just a group of people to sit here and be, be some kind of church entity on Sundays. But we are to be intricately tied into each other's lives. So much so that your faith and my faith and our faith together builds on each other. And that my life, right? for we now live if you're standing fast in the Lord. So that I can look to you and say, if you're standing fast in the Lord, my faith will be built up. You see, I I didn't plan on being in Greenville, South Carolina five years ago. And maybe you didn't either. Maybe you didn't plan on being in this room at this time. If you did, I'd love to talk to you because I'd love to find out some more things about the future. But the point is, is that God has given each of us to each other to grow together. Not merely to put up with each other but to stir each other up and to say, my faith in some way is tied to this other person. And I am dependent. On their faith increasing, my faith will increase in that same measure. 
So not, not just a matter of, okay, let's really get serious about fellowship. Rather, it's more of a matter of saying, how can I come alongside and, and do this together as a church, as a family? But see, it won't just happen. Community never just happens. We, we were born into a community, but that doesn't mean that the kind of community that Paul is, is showing us here in 1 Thessalonians, this kind that says, I was torn away from you, but I'm eagerly desiring to see you face to face. That was a beautiful to, to hear what Rhett said to say, I'm so glad to be back with you all. That, 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 that's the kind of disposition to have towards one another. I can't wait to be with God's people. As opposed to, all right, let's, let's round them up and let's get in the car and let's go. But this is an opportunity we have to know God better by interacting, by speaking to each other, by loving one another in word and in deed. It requires us sitting down when you have a myriad of things to do and writing a letter. It requires you in your busy, hectic lives to sit down and say, this person is of more value than the laundry right now. Or this person is of more value than X. It requires a sacrifice on our part. It, it, it requires a phone call or even a text message in some way to be able to say, I want to communicate with these other people who God has put in my life. It's not happenstance that we're here. It's not just a coincidence that you and I are here in this room. But that we have an opportunity to come alongside each other and to say, I long to see you. I am giving thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in my prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. And so Christian faith is communal in nature. It's not just you and Jesus. It's you, Jesus, and all of us. Second thing is that Christian faith copies. I mentioned at the beginning, uh, not just about my grunge outfit, but just the fact that we, by nature, copy. That's, that's what we are. We're dependent creatures. The whole rabbi, and, and to get a little bit into more detail in, in Scripture here, that the whole rabbi-disciple relationship was based upon this emulating idea. Okay, It's not just a matter of a rabbi dispenses wisdom and knowledge. No, the, the, the disciple walked with the rabbi. He spent time with the rabbi. Not just so that he could be able to quote what the rabbi said, but so that he could see how the rabbi interacted when there were Pharisees who would come and, and challenge him. How did, how did Jesus look when he, when he responded to people? That's why Jesus said, I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me, and then I will send you out to preach. I'm not just going to give you a classroom setting, but I'm going to share my life with you. And in fact, that, isn't that what Jesus said? He said, everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. See, we wouldn't trust a surgeon who hadn't first done a residency to see how they were supposed to cut something. You wouldn't trust a blacksmith who, who didn't have any kind of apprenticeship. You wouldn't trust other people who hadn't been in the fires of knowing what life is like and being able to respond to those things. Not just with a, a pity statement, but with a disposition. A life that commended what they were saying. 
And we see this idea here in verses 6 and 7. Paul writes this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. How or why? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example. You yourselves became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Our lives, our very lives, it's not just about information overload and information dumps in the Christian life. But our lives are meant to be modeled for other people and they are shaped by those who we are close to and who we choose to spend our time with. But see, when people see our lives as Christians, they ought to see someone else. They ought to be able to look at someone and say, they act a little different. Right? Because what, one of the biggest indictments in our culture is about hypocrisy among Christians. And I might say, and I would say, that we can have a whole lot of good teaching, but it, our lives will not commend what we're teaching. Reflect on your own journey for a moment, if you would. I want you to think back to when you first became a Christian. Why did you become a Christian? If you're like me, I can look back and I can see marked people in my life. Think about James. Think about Bernard. I think about all these different people in my life who shaped me. And that when I was going through difficult times, I could look to their lives and say they're different and they act different. The gospel has taken root in their lives in a way that I want to be true of my own life. And I would bet that's the same thing for you. Is that you look at your life and, and you can pinpoint people in your journey that God has placed in your life to be able to commend the words of the gospel in their actions. We were inevitably drawn to a life that commended the gospel. And even now, much of who you are and who I am are shaped by those very people, whether we like it or not. We're not originals. And we're not intended to be. In fact, we are made in, and you heard me pray this earlier, we're made in the image of God. We are, by nature, copies of an original. And our lives are meant to reflect that creator in our lives. And so we see the example in Paul and how he was steadfast of hope. How Jesus, in much affliction, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, had joy even though he was going to be crucified. See, that's inherent to who we are. And that is the most important part of this chapter. Is that we grasp that we are to be imitators and to be imitable. To be people who other people look at and say, I want to know more. And not only do I want to know more, but I want to be like that person. The third and final thing is that Christian faith commends. So look again at verses 6 and 7. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. What does Paul base his observation on that they are imitators? Well, for you received with much affliction, like Jesus... And with joy in the Holy Spirit. He looked at their lives and he said, 
I, I know that you are spreading out. Your faith is being spread abroad because of how you're living your lives. That you are listening and you are being changed and conformed. And in fact, even go back to verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this uncanny way in evangelical culture to think that merely knowing information means that we are spiritually mature. Because we read certain books, we make the false assumption that we know, and we get frustrated when people tell us what we already know. But look at verse 3. Look at it again. What does Paul commend in the Thessalonians? Another way to put it is faith's work, love's labor, hope's steadfastness. In another way, what he is saying is these things produce this. So, so faith, what does he say here? Faith produces work. Love produces labor. Hope produces steadfastness. We can take it for granted that our Christian faith actually does something. And when we take it for granted... Then we start to think that if I know all the nuances and all the particulars and all of this complex knowledge, then I've arrived at maturity. While Christian maturity can mean having more information and it can mean being able to delineate certain doctrines and being able to make precise statements, it's not the same thing as being mature in Christ. If This, after all, is not what marked the life of Jesus, is it? He didn't spend time delineating all the fine points of doctrine. And I'll get into that in a moment. We don't have to... Let, let me just hit the pause button because one of the things that I want to make clear in my preaching is the, the utter necessity of grace in our lives. That we cannot be perfect. And, and I think the more that I preach that, the more I believe it. And the more that I preach it, hopefully we believe it. That there is nothing that will commend you to God. And yet, faith works. Faith produces work. We, we, we shouldn't be any more afraid of works and of good works than we are of apples from an apple tree. An apple necessarily grows apples. And we shouldn't be afraid of it. So a Christian life that is rooted in the gospel will necessarily bear fruit. Will necessarily work out good works. But that's not what saved us. They're the culmination of our faith. In fact, um, one, one uh, theologian said that they bring to completion our faith. Because it's one thing to say, but it's another thing to live a life that's changed. Love labors. A baby is, is a baby nothing more than the love between two people. It's the fruit of the love between two people. And it's, so clinging tightly to Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances is the result of a hope that he will calm the storm one day. So we cling tightly to Jesus. In the midst of these difficult circumstances. And, and in clinging to him. We will produce fruit. A mature faith actually turns from idols. That can never give life. And turns to the resurrected son of God. The one who gives life. A faith that does not result in a changed life. Is merely information. And it's merely knowledge. And it merely puffs up. So consider for a moment the testimony of Jesus. So when the Pharisees, who knew the Bible better than you or better than I do, when the Pharisees came to Jesus and started challenging him about the scriptures, he said that you're searching in vain because they're testifying. You have missed the entire point of all the doctrine and all the scripture that you're studying. 
Their religion kept them from seeing, kept them from their very purpose of their faith, which was to foster love for neighbor. And Jesus simply asked them, because um, according to their assumptions, that he was breaking the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, is it lawful to do evil or good? And more pointedly, he says later, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, won't you immediately pull it out? He says, use your common sense. Of course you would. Love would be the motivating force behind these things. And so, yes, it's a good thing for me to heal on the Sabbath. And if your religion keeps you from the greater truth of love for neighbor, then your religion probably is not true. Your doctrine is probably false. Because James... Jesus' brother makes the same conclusion about our faith in James chapter 2. And, it's, and, and he said, it's gloriously true that faith, independent of works, justifies us. We are justified before God, independent of our works, but that faith will not stay alone. That faith will not remain separated from work. Work will overflow out of our love and faith in God. Works are to our faith as the spirit is to the body, to borrow James's language. This, after all, is what Peter, or I'm sorry, is what Paul was hearing about back in Corinth, wasn't it? In fact, their deeds were commending and preaching the gospel themselves. Unfortunately, folks have co-opted St. Francis of Assisi to say, hey, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. They actually didn't say that. Um, the closest thing that we have is preach the gospel, preach the gospel, and do good and do good to your neighbor. He never said Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And so even Francis of Assisi knew that there was an utter necessity to speak truth in other people's lives. But it came from a fruit of saying, hey, what is this that's going on in your life? And in fact, we can see that same thing here going on, is that in verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How did they know that? How do they know that? Well, they probably say, hey, Marcellus, why, why haven't you gone to the temple lately to worship you know, Aphrodite? Why haven't you gone to the temple lately? Or, do, do you not believe anymore? No, I don't believe that anymore. I, I've actually turned from idols and I'm serving the, the Son of God who, reigned, who, who is alive and who is resurrected. And so, so his life was the very thing that commended what he was about ready to say. He didn't start preaching and then say, hey, ask me about that later. He lived his life and he lived it out of charity, which then said, people then were led to say, hey, why, why is he different? Why is Marcellus not going to the temple anymore? And why is he a lot nicer than he used to be? In, th- in this way, then, the copycats become mature. They become the ones who are commended and are then copied. Right? Because he says, because you yourselves became an example for all these other people. And so you and I, we have the joy of looking to others, namely Jesus, and emulating him, borrowing from him, and, and imitating him. That is part of our that is our Christian discipleship, is not just to know all of these things, but to then live them out in such a way that it commends the gospel to our neighbors. That is Christian maturity. So as you drive in your car today to go back home, as you uh, interact with your family, as you interact at work tomorrow, will your life commend the gospel? We may know these things, 
Like, do people want what we know? Or do people want the kind of life that we are commending because we are gracious people, we are charitable people? And we can explain to them that we have turned from idols to the living God. If you would, just take a few moments to uh, reflect on these three things. That our Christian faith is meant to be communal. That it's meant to copy. And that it's meant to commend. So I'd like for us to take a few moments and, and consider that. Thank <clears throat> you.